As we've seen in our study here of 1 Peter, the theme of this letter is the suffering righteous. And in thinking through last Sunday's sermon, which was a difficult passage, several things uh, came to mind that I'd like to talk about as we start. The first is the intent of the passage. And it is this, that we are to follow the example of Jesus who suffered in his body. We've seen that in this letter there are several, at least three major, what we call Christological passages that, is, that deal specifically with the person of Christ. For the second time in this letter, we are called to follow his example. In chapter 1, verse number 21, to this you were called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you should follow in his steps. And in our passage last Sunday, verse number 1 of chapter 4, Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. As I said last week, to put it concisely, suffering does not change our responsibilities. We can't opt out of our callings simply because we are suffering, or particularly if we are suffering unjustly. We should not imagine that suffering changes the equation. We are to follow the example of Jesus. The reality is that if or when we suffer, we're not the first persons to do so. We are, in fact, part of a continuing narrative that we see in the Old Testament, that we see ultimately in Jesus, supremely in him, and we will see it in our lives as well. And as Peter puts it in what we looked at last week, if and when we suffer, we are demonstrating that we have given up those things against which suffering is a protest. We show our opposition to sinful living. So we need to understand that suffering does not change our responsibilities. But when one is in pain, it's hard to think of anything else. It's hard to think of anyone else but ourselves. And it is hard to imagine life without pain. By the way, I was corrected last week after the sermon. I mentioned that when one has a migraine, one looks for light at the end of the tunnel. And I was said that for someone who is suffering a migraine, light is the last thing that they want, even if it is metaphorical. Um, but the fact is, in the midst of pain, it seems that this is the way life is going to be from now on. It's hard to imagine a time when there was no pain. My point is this, that when we suffer, our perspective gets all messed up. And I believe that in part, Peter is writing to arm his readers to think clearly in the time of suffering. That we are to think of others and not just ourselves. That we are to understand that suffering is not the final word in the story. And that we need to know that there are other matters of importance. So that's the intent of the passage we looked at last week. But something else kept coming up, and it ultimately will tie in with what we'll look at next Sunday. But the second thing is that the suffering of others oftentimes is of greater concern to us than our own suffering. This might seem contradictory or, or paradoxical, um, but I, I see the choice as being this. You can either be Job or you can be Job's friends. And for all the bad press that they've gotten, and rightly so, I would remind you of their first reaction in Job 2. When Job's three friends, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the, Am the Amathite, heard about all the troubles that had come upon him, they set out from their homes and met together by agreement to go and sympathize with him and comfort him. 
when they saw him from a distance, they could hardly recognize him. They began to weep aloud, and they tore their robes and sprinkled dust on their heads. Then they sat on the ground with him for seven days and seven nights. No one said a word to him because they saw how great his suffering was. When we went through the book of Job some years back, we saw in this incident the practice of presence and the sacrament of silence. Sometimes it's easier to be the person in the hospital bed than it is to be the person visiting the person who's in the hospital. I've mentioned uh, before uh, a novel that I read recently entitled Silence, uh, actually written in Japanese. Chimoko is translated uh, by William Johnston. It was written by Shusaku Endo. Um, It's set in the 17th century, and it tells the story of two Portuguese priests who are Jesuits who are smuggled into Japan. And they have gone at that point to find out uh, how the Christians are doing, to comfort them, to encourage them, but also they are to locate and and talk to a fellow Jesuit, an iconic figure, uh, Cristobal Fiera, who, according to rumors that have come out of Japan, has left the Christian faith. He has apostatized. He has left the Christian faith. And they have gone to see if this, in fact, is true. One of the two Jesuits is followed throughout the story. His name is Sebastian Rodriguez. And when everything is said and done in this novel, the most significant thing that pushes not only Ferriera, but then Rodriguez himself to leave the Christian faith is not primarily their own suffering. That is a part of it, but that's not the primary thing. Rather, it is seeing the horrific suffering of Japanese Christians and God's apparent silence in the face of that suffering. Ultimately, they say, how, how can God be who he says he is when he lets these, his followers, suffer as they have? We've seen earlier in First Peter, when he quotes from Psalm 34, that if David is correct, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And as we've asked, if that's true, then why do righteous people suffer? And it would seem that there are two possibilities. Either that the believers or the persons in question are actually wicked, and therefore they're suffering because God is angry with them, or God will not or cannot protect his people. Both choices are frightening. Job's friends choose the first option, the first possibility, and they argue at length with Job that he in fact must be guilty of some great sin, and that's why he's lost his family, he's lost all his possessions, he's lost his health, he's lost everything. And they insist it must be because of something that he has done. Because God doesn't make mistakes, and therefore, Job, you are suffering for your sins. The friars in Endo's novel choose the second option or possibility, and therefore they turn from the Christian faith. They come to believe that God is either unwilling or unable to help his people. Peter presents a third option, as we've seen, which is revealed in the coming of Jesus into the world. In chapter 3, verse 14, Peter says something that turns conventional wisdom on its head. If you suffer for what is right, you are blessed. How how can it be that those who do good suffer? 
And, and who would ever confuse a state of suffering with a state of blessedness? What seems to be the case is not. And as Peter explains to us, it is because with the coming of Jesus into the world, the world is being recalibrated, if you wish. And the things that we think, oh, this is the way it is, in fact, that is not the way things are. And so what we find, and we've seen it from the Old Testament on, is that those who are righteous may, in fact, suffer. I, I'm really convinced that this notion of the suffering of others is something that we need to embrace and look at. Um, and we will see, the Lord willing, next Sunday, beginning at verse 12, Peter will return to the matter of suffering. By the way, and after that, in chapter 5, he turns to the matter of church leadership and submission, which would seem like he's changed topics. Uh, I would argue that, in fact, he's not. We, as a church, as the people of God, together are to embrace one another in the midst of our suffering. The passage we're going to look at today includes verses 7 through 11. And I see it as akin or similar to what we do in our singing. That is, between the next to the last and the last verse, we have John play. And it gives us a chance to reflect, hopefully, on what we've sung and what we will sing. In these verses, we have sort of this interlude in which Peter re recalls some of the material that he has already written with some new twists. He adds some things to it, and I think it is the nature of a good review that you don't simply go over the old material, but you add something new to it. And what we find in these verses is that Peter deals with community solidarity, with partnership, with family. And so we read of love, hospitality, and service. And by the way, Paul does this very same thing. And I will speak about Paul twice in this sermon at some length. In Paul's letter to the Philippians, he writes to a church that is facing persecution. But it is also a church that is divided. And again, I think in the midst of suffering, we don't always think straight. Our thinking is not always what it should be. And one would think that in a time of persecution, the church would gather together and try to comfort each other uh, to stand and contend for the faith against those that are persecuting them. That isn't always the case, and that's why we have the book of Philippians, and I think it's why we have our passage here today. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Paul writes, Whatever happens, conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Then whether I come and see you or only hear about you in my absence, I will know that you stand firm in one spirit, contending as one man for the faith of the gospel. He's telling them you need to stand together. In chapter 2, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ, if you have any comfort from his love, if any fellowship with the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and purpose. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others better than yourselves. Each of you should look not only to your own interest, but also to the interests of others. And then when we come to chapter 4 in Philippians, we find out he actually mentions people by name. Therefore, my brothers, you whom I love and long for my joy and crown, that is how you should stand firm in the Lord, dear friends. I plead with Yodia and I plead with Syntyche to agree with each other in the Lord. Yes, and I ask you loyal 
loyal yoke fellow, help these women who have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. There's persecution, and yet there's division. By the way, one can, can hardly leave the book of Philippians without mentioning chapter 1, verse 29. For it has been granted to you to believe on Christ. And let me start over. For it has been granted to you on behalf of Christ not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for him. So the gift that God has given us of faith is a wonderful gift, but we've also been given the gift of suffering. In our passage today, we find the following. First of all, verse number seven, which after the difficult passage last week, we have another one, verse seven, a statement regarding the end. And then a restating of the call to love each other deeply, a call to hospitality. He speaks of service, and then it ends with a doxology. Look, if you would, at verses seven through 11. The end of all things is near. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Above all, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides. So that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. I mentioned this last Sunday that one of the difficulties of going verse by verse is you don't have the option of skipping the difficult ones. Um, At the beginning of our passage today we find what appears to be uh, a difficult statement. The end of all things is near. Let me see if I can unpack this and explain I'll try to explain it in three parts. First of all, the word end. The word that Peter uses is in Greek the word telos. It isn't the first time this word has appeared in this letter. However, if you're using the NIV, which most of us do, it's the first time we see the word in English and appear. Uh, and so, how does he use it elsewhere? How do the translators use it uh, or translate it elsewhere in the book? If you look at chapter 1, verse number 9, For you are receiving the goal, that is the telos of your faith, the salvation of your soul. So the word he uses that's translated end in our passage is translated goal in chapter 1, verse 9. And then four verses later, chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully. And the word there is telos, that is to the end on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. Telos is a goal-oriented process. It is the ultimate object or the aim. Certainly, this is what Peter intends in chapter 1, verse 9, when he speaks of the goal of your faith. When we hear he speaks of hoping fully or completely, telos, you have a goal in mind, the goal of God's grace. But what does it mean here in our passage today, chapter 4, verse 7, the end of all things is near. I would say that the goal of God's saving purpose is at hand. You may recall that when Jesus began to preach, he said, the kingdom of God is at hand. In some sense, we would say that the end, the telos, has already begun. We see this in chapter 1, verse number 20. 
He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last days for your sake. So Peter sees the coming of Jesus, which for us was 2,000 years ago, as being in the last days. In another sense, however, the end has not yet come. The end has begun, but it has not yet been completed. We've spoken about this before. There is the tension of the already, but not yet. That God has done his work, but he is continuing, and he has not yet finished his work. That God has saved us, and yet our salvation is not yet complete. So, again, going back to chapter 1, we are told in verse number 20 that Jesus was revealed in these last times. And then if you look ahead to verse number 13, it says, Set your hope fully on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. That is, in the future he will be revealed. It's like, Peter, I think you're confused. You, you were saying that he was revealed, and now you're speaking of him being revealed. This, I think, explains in part the nature of telos, that it is something, it is a process that has begun, but not has not yet been completed. It is the already not yet. The second thing that I would tell you to sort of explain what Peter is saying here is to take you to one of Paul's writings in the matter, and that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And here he makes as difficult a statement as Peter has just made, and that is, he says, what I mean, brothers, is that the time is short. Now, when you take what Peter says and what Paul says, for those who oppose the gospel, they would say these men obviously were confused. They thought Jesus was going to return at any moment. And therefore they said, it's almost here. And so they write what they do. And now we know that they are wrong because it's been 2,000 years and Jesus has not yet returned. When Paul says the time is short, he means that the time is limited, that it is compressed. And he goes on to say, and if you... Are, want to take notes and write this down in 1 Corinthians 7 he says from now on those who have wives should live as if they had none those who mourn as if they did not those who are happy as if they were not those who buy something as if it were not theirs to keep those who use the things of this world as if not engrossed to them for the world in its present form is passing away this reality that the time is short should mean as, P as Paul has said that if you are married, this is not the ultimate defining definition of who you are. This isn't everything about you. And if you mourn, that's not the end of the story either. If you're happy, that's great, but neither is that the ultimate end of the story. Buying something, possessions do not define you, or they should not. The things of this world, we should understand that they are in fact passing away. Because the time is short. What does he mean? Paul does not mean that the amount of time we have left is short. Because if he did, he was wrong. And we should disregard what he says. What he means is that as Christians, our perspective on time is radically different. It is new. In, Bible, in the Bible, time is used several ways, in the sense of quantity, you know, like how much, or how long does it take, but also pointing to an event, as in, is it time yet? Let me ask you a question. Is there anything that can shorten or compress time? I would suggest you two possibilities. The first is when there is a beginning point and an ending point. 
when you know where it begins and where it ends, in some sense, your perception of time is very different than when there is no, no beginning and when there is no end. It just sort of endlessly goes on. That the beginning point and the ending point compresses time. When I was younger, I had a great fear of water, and it, it, I think I had to take three different series of lessons just to learn how to swim. The first series of lessons just to get my head in the water. Um, and if you've ever, if you had to be taught how to swim, you know, the teacher stands out in the middle of the pool and they say, swim to me. And so you swim and you don't know it, but they keep moving away. But as long as there's somebody there, there's a sense of, okay, this is going to end at some point. As opposed to if you were to get into the ocean and just start swimming, I think your perception of time would change dramatically because there is no end in sight. Well, for us as Christians, we know that God created the world and we know that one day Jesus will return. We have a beginning and we have an end. That's why he is the Alpha and the Omega. And that compresses or should compress our sense of time. But also, the second thing that compresses time is our knowledge of an event that is going to happen in the future. One might argue that if you know something is going to happen in the future, it might actually slow time down. Like when you're a kid waiting for Christmas morning, that it seems that it will never come. Or when you're young and you want to be a teenager and you think you'll never get there. It's interesting how the, the kids, you ask them, how old are you? I'm seven and three quarters. You know, they want to get as much as they can to that point. Um, I won't argue with you, but what I, what I would say is when you know that there is an event in the future, it changes your perspective of time. It changes your perspective. And by the way, think a moment for those of us who are older. Um, why does it seem that the older we get, the faster time goes? I don't know if you've noticed this. Perhaps it's just me. Um, I think it is the realization that the end of the journey is coming up. When you're younger, that's the last thing you're thinking about. But as we get older, we have a sense that the time is compressed. There is a point in the future at which I will die. And it, it should, at least in some ways, change my perspective. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, calls for a radical new perspective. That this present age is going to pass away. This is what Peter is writing to his readers. The call is not for de detachment. Just, I'm married, forget my wife, I'm not going to be engaged with that anymore, or possessions, or jobs, or family, or anything. The call is not for detachment. Because the things that Paul mentions are not wrong. Marriage, mourning, being happy, buying things, using the things of this world. Paul expects the Corinthians to continue to do this. Even though there are those in the Corinthian church that think these are unspiritual, that we're spiritual people. We don't do those things anymore. But what Paul says is these things don't determine our lives. They are not to define who we are. Because we are marked by eternity. These things are temporary. They are passing away. Thus Peter will write in our passage today, the end of all things is near. Having said all that, I find it fascinating that 
back in our passage, verse number seven, everyone seems to focus on the first part of the verse. The second part of the verse we don't really seem to mess with. Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Everyone wants to know what Peter means in the first part, which I think we could spend the rest of our lives arguing about and never come to a consensus. But interestingly enough, the second part of the verse, I think we, it's pretty clear what Peter is saying. That's the problem. Uh, we, don't want, we don't want clarity because it brings obligation. We'd rather have something obscure so we don't really have to do anything about it. This is the second time that Peter has said something like this in this letter. And the first time is also in connection with telos. It's in chapter 1, verse 13. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Be self-controlled. Set your hope fully, and that's where telos is found, on the grace to be given you when Jesus Christ is revealed. And so we find the double focus of the mind as well as self-control. We are to have the attitude of the suffering righteous as seen supremely in Jesus. That is, that our focus is not to be on human desires, but rather for the will of God. And we are to pray. You will notice that Peter does not tell us how to pray. As one writer puts it, he doesn't give us a technology of prayer. Rather, he concerns himself with a readiness to pray and an awareness of the one to whom we are praying. Again, from chapter 3, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their prayer. What a wonderful thing to say. Having, hopefully, oriented the thinking of his readers, Peter now addresses, again, in sort of a, a review of some sort, the actions that his readers should take. And we find them with three verbs. And the ESV, I think, is better here because it has something very important. It says one another. So we are to love one another deeply. We are to show hospitality to one another. And we are to serve one another. The first one we've already seen earlier in this book, in chapter 1, verse number 22. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth so that you have sincere love for your brothers, love one another deeply from the heart. This love points to a sense of solidarity and of loyalty, a disposition that favors the others in the church, in the community, a disposition that refuses to harm them. It is a commitment to harmony in the group. And to reinforce this, Peter quotes from Proverbs 12, um, 10, verse 12. We saw this, by the way, in our study of James. It's the very last statement in James' letter, which I find very striking. Remember this, whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Excuse me, James. I thought that forgiving was God's business, that only he can save us, that only he can give us the gift of repentance. What, what is James saying? And, and what is Peter saying, that we cover over a multitude of sins or do we have the capacity to forgive sin? Ultimately, that is God's job. But we must act as if we could. We cannot cover their sins, but we can follow the example of Jesus who can and who did. And who gave his life that we might be saved. 
Paul wrote of this love in 1 Corinthians 13. Love keeps no record of wrongs. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. So if we are the people of God, I think he's preparing us for what he'll say again about suffering as we are enter into this together. First of all, we are to love one another deeply. And secondly, we are to show hospitality to one another. Hospitality is a behavior that is generated by, but it is also that which forms our deepest commitments. The practice of hospitality comes from character of what we would call hospitable character. The context within which Peter is writing is the possibility of persecution and the need perhaps to provide a sanctuary as well as to provide for those in need, perhaps again due to persecution. While persecution is pretty much a non-issue for us in our society, those in need is not. And the reality is we are to share with those who are in need. You will recall that this is one of the first things we are told about the early church after the day of Pentecost. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Selling their possessions and good, they gave to everyone as he had need. I find it strange, at least in my experience, that verse number 45 really seems to bother a lot of Christians. Um, the idea fills them with dread, the idea of having things in common and sharing with one another. I, I think it's a tremendous expression of community. particularly in our passage, in light of what God has done. God has shared with us. As John puts it, Jesus pitched his tent among us. If you wish, he welcomed us into the tent. He showed hospitality. Peter adds that we are to do this without grumbling. And I'm glad that he does this, because let's be honest. Showing hospitality is demanding. And it is often inconvenient. That's why we need to be reminded to show hospitality. Again, not merely as a demonstration of unity and love, but it is also that which forms unity and I think creates love for one another. The third verb, we are to serve one another. In verse number 10, we find for the fifth time in this letter, Peter has written of God's grace. And here we find it expressed very specifically in terms of God's gifts. And from what Peter writes, we can see that God's gifts to us, that our gifts have their origin in God's initiative. And therefore, it's ridiculous. It is useless for us to use our gift as a status symbol to say, I'm higher in, in the congregation because I have this gift versus someone else. God gave me the gift. It is his gift to me. Therefore, it is not a marker of my status. Secondly, everyone has a gift. No one is overlooked. Perhaps an entire sermon could be preached merely on this because there are those who are convinced that they do not have a gift and are rather frustrated that they don't. The third thing I think that Peter shows us here is that the status assigned to every Christian, as it were, is lower than everybody else in the congregation. That is, 
I am to be a servant of everyone else in the congregation. My status is lower than everyone else. And from what Zib read to us today in John 13, Jesus demonstrated this by washing the feet of his disciples. We are to serve one another. In verse number 11, Peter mentions two specific gifts, speaking and serving. And one might well ask, why only these two gifts? Um, Why are these the two gifts that Peter chose to mention? From the other passages we have in the New Testament that talk about God's gifts to us, these seem to cover all of them. These seem to be almost bookends, and all the other gifts are found in between them. For example, Luke in beginning the book of Acts. In my former book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach. So there's the speaking as well as the doing or the serving. Paul uh, does this in Romans chapter 12. We have different gifts according to the grace given to us. If a man's gift is prophesying, let him use it in proportion to his faith. If it is serving, let him serve. If it is teaching, let him teach. And then he continues, if it is encouraging, let him encourage. If it is contributing to the needs of others, let him give generously. If it is leadership, let him govern diligently. If it is showing mercy, let him do it cheerfully. So at the beginning of these gifts that God gives us, he puts the two that Peter mentions, that of teaching as well as serving. We could get lost in this if we're not careful. I think the point is very clear. I think that's why we're trying to avoid it. We are to serve one another. God has gifted each of us so that we can serve one another. With the gift of serving, Peter gives qualifications. He qualifies for one who is speaking, he should do it as one speaking the very words of God. With the gift of service, he should do it with the strength God provides. Whatever the questions that these qualifications may rise, what does Peter mean by this? I think what is clear is that we are not left to our own devices. That we should not think, I can't do this. Well, of course you can't do this. It is God who works through us. But he has given us the gifts and we are to exercise these gifts in a way that is beyond our ability to understand, God's gift does his work through us. With this in mind, it leads to the doxology, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. This may strike us, if you're familiar with scripture, as sort of a nice way to end this passage. Um, And I think we see it as nice because of its familiarity. It sounds spiritual enough and, you know, worshipful enough Um, but stop and think a minute about what Peter is saying since God gives us what we need to love one another to show hospitality to one another to serve one another then it only stands to reason when we love one another when we show hospitality when we serve he is the one who should be praised and not us really quite remarkable. There is no place for pride or boasting. Whatever I am able to do, it is because God has given me the gift. So any praise must be directed toward him. And it is to be directed to him through Jesus Christ, who accomplished I mean, we're able to do this because of what Jesus has done. As he wrote earlier in this book, through, Peter says, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. As a result, Peter says that to Jesus Christ be the glory and the power forever and ever. Good enough. So so what's 
what's the point here. But stop and think a minute. In this letter that Peter's been writing to these people, who is Jesus Christ? In 1 Peter, who is Jesus? He is the suffering righteous. He is righteous and yet he suffered. He is the one in whose steps we are to walk. He is the example we are to follow. The one whose attitude we are to embrace and arm ourselves with. I think to people who are suffering, to those who may be suffering undeservedly, unjustly, this is more than a mere doxology. This points to the telos of the story. This is the goal that Jesus Christ would be praised. And so, in the midst of suffering, you may not see the light at the end of the tunnel, but you need to know that it's there. That the suffering isn't the end of the story. And how do we know that? Because we see it in Jesus Christ. And to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. When you take these verses together, verses 7 through 11, I think, simply put, it comes to this. We are all in this together. In our suffering, in our rejoicing, we are to love one another. We are to show hospitality to one another. We are to help those in need. We are to serve one another. Suffering may cloud our vision. If I'm suffering, I may become very self-centered, thinking about myself and my suffering. When others suffer, it may throw us off even more. Because we can't imagine why these things have happened. But whether I'm suffering, whether I'm Job or I'm the friends of Job, our responsibilities remain the same. We are to love each other. We are to show hospitality to each other, to help each other in need. And we are to serve each other. And above all, we should remember that the story has not yet reached its goal, its telos. That is yet to come. God be praised. Let's pray together. Father, suffering is something that, generally speaking, we would rather not talk about. We would rather not experience. And we would not want to see others experience it as well. But we see it in the life of your saints in the Old Testament. We see it in your Son. Why should we expect that our lives would be any different? Help us to understand, to appreciate that we are all in this together. We are to stand together to love one another, to show hospitality to one another, to help each other in time of need, and to serve one another. We don't stand, we're not to stand alone. In times of difficulty, our perspective gets warped. It really becomes transformed and not in a good way. Help us to see that the time is short, that is, it's been compressed. There is an ending coming. There is a telos toward which all things are moving. 
what we're going through does not define us. And it isn't the end of the story. That Jesus is there waiting for us when all things will have reached their telos, their conclusion. These are difficult things to think about, but I pray that by your grace in the days to come we would meditate on these things. And above all, look to Jesus Christ, the one who came, who was righteous, and who suffered. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen.